0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi. And alongside me, as always, is Paul Gilieri. Paul, here we are. Yes, we are we recording are. Uh, episode well, uh, two of No Code Time. It's not really a month. Retrospective. Is yeah, it's, sure. It's a No Code Retrospective
1: in honor of the, uh, what is this, 2025? 20, 20 five. five years. Yeah. 25. That's right.
0: 25. So we, um, we did a whole month of 10, and you know that's the seminal album. It's the original album. You have to kind of uh, talk about that if for every obvious reason, but we can't overshadow. We can't let it overshadow totally another album that came out five years later on the same day, 25 year anniversary of no code. so let's carry on talking about no code a little bit. We talked about Jack Irons um, last week in his contributions to the band and how underrated he really is in the story of the band let alone his musical contributions that was kind of allusion, kind of an allusion to this week's episode which is all about kind of the headspace of the band while making that record and and what they were going through that created the music and the lyrics that we now have um Uh, I know, obviously, many of you are are headed out to See Here Now in Asbury Park, New Jersey, in just a couple of days' time. First Pearl Jam show in a little over three years. Sweet Jesus. For all you kids going out there, have fun. Be safe. Enjoy. We will break down the set list a little bit uh, next week. But for now, enjoy that. And we will talk to you about that show next week. Uh, But for now, let's talk about No Code a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those albums that I feel like sometimes gets a little lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks about the first three. A lot of folks talk about yield because it was kind of like their, I don't want to say comeback, but there was a lot more radio presence. Dude, the evolution was all over MTV. First time they had had a, a, a song on MTV in six years. Yeah. Um, and then you got, you know, the, the albums that came after that had kind of the, hey, is this a return to form kind of hype thing? And I feel like No Code kind of loses its, its shine a little bit. Um, first of all, do you, do you agree with that sentiment?
1: I do. I, I think this, is, this particular album is kind of the, uh, the connoisseur's album, if you will. You know, it's, it's one of those albums that really turned a lot of fans off, I think at the time it was not well received by the generic or general fan base and in in retrospect i've noticed that it's become almost like a it has its own cult following mm-hmm. not in a way riot act does <laughs> it, it it's more of a um it's, it's an album that i think people look back on critically with with fonder favor than they did when it first came out. I think that at the time it was viewed as this transitional record where the band took some eclectic risks and there was some experimentation. And and I, I'm sure that was appreciated even then from the reviews that I recall, but I don't think that it it aged the way that people thought that it would. I think as it has aged, it
0: actually has accrued more fans than it did when it first came out. I think I can buy that. I think um, I've spoken about some of the songs in this way before, but that album in a lot of ways, I think for many of us, um, and I want to speak for the the older fans, even older than us, and I consider us to be kind of older fans now, uh, but there are some fans closer to the, the uh, age of the band members. So you're talking, you know, late forties, early mid fifties. Yeah. Um, who would have understood um, a little bit better the maturation of thought that they were going through. And obviously, you can't know um, the thrills and tribulations of fame and being thrust into the spotlight on this giant, you know, porcelain pedestal. Is it porcelain? I don't know. It could be cold. I don't know
1: all the recording you do in your bathroom. I think that you've got porcelain on the mind too much, Jason.
0: You got to stop with that. <laughs> People didn't know until you mentioned it. <laughs> no, they did not because they can, use extra, extra verb in my voice today. Back in the can. No, no. Back, <laughs> no. In, the, back in the bathroom. Um, but yeah, you threw me off. <laughs> oh yeah. The pedestal. So uh, the pedestal. Um, Yeah. When you are up in that superstardom and you, and you come back down or you try to, you force yourself back down. Really? That's hard to, to uh, sympathize with. No one's going to know. You know, Stones on record is saying
1: that this was a time where the band recognized that people
0: were losing interest in them. And, yeah, they could go out. They could still sell out. But was out. it for music or was it for their stances on things?
1: I think the stances turned some fans off, but I think it, it was more the music more than anything. Because at the end of the day, you, you could have whatever stance that you have if you make killer music that fans want to hear. Kanye West. <clears throat> <laughs> No? Uh, and now, I think No Code is a killer album, but at the time, I think fans wanted verses. You know, they, the, A lot of fans wanted 10 again. Right. They, they wanted the same sound. And I think they tolerated Vitology because if, despite what they viewed as filler, I think a lot of them felt that the, the tracks that did shine, like Spin the Black Circle and Corduroy and Better Man and so on and so on, those tracks were strong enough that you can skip weird shit. songs. You didn't like <laughs> exactly to care with no code. You didn't have any of that. Um, and, and the band knew that they could still go out and sell out just based on the, the pedigree of the, the previous three albums. But it, it stones on record as saying that there was a sense I'm quoting him here. There was definitely a sense of us not delivering the goods in the way that the mass is expected from us. It's only in hindsight that it seemed all right then I was straining at it. We didn't talk about it. Talk about what, how do we get people to like us again? I mean, this was a real thing for them mm-hmm. to, to, to struggle with, to wrestle with the idea that you went from being the biggest band on the planet. And you try to take a stance on a, a couple of issues, but more than anything, you write a record that coupled with those stances and the fact that the whole Ticketmaster stance ultimately left them unable to tour to the capacity that they had in the past. And, it's easy to see why your conventional fan, who you know likes the band but isn't you know a, obsessively into the band, that's the kind of fan that's going to say, eh, you know, whatever, man. Like these guys, they're. they're they're on, they're, they're doing their thing and, and, and I'm just not feeling it anymore. And they moved on to whatever the hell it was, the Limp biscuit or whatever it was, the, the rage of the, of, of, the day in 96. 97. Well, you, yeah, so, you're,
0: you're probably not wrong with that assessment. Um, those kinds of the, the bros that loved even flow didn't not realizing it was about the homeless did probably move on to that. Um, so I don't want to get too far down, down the song path. Um, because we're going to talk to our friend Stip about that in the next episode.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, really focusing on the music per se. Um, or not per se, focusing on the music. This episode is more about the state of the band at the time that that created this. So the reason why I mentioned the, the maturation process and us being younger than them is we didn't understand what they were going through. Because we hadn't gotten to a point in our life where we could we could have the ability to understand what that meant to to be at a certain level to have to come back down to have people coming at you all the time stalkers whatnot and and wanting to do things on your own like i said no one's going to sympathize with having that fame element and pulling back but they can't understand a maturation of the brain and the heart and the head and to actively you know take away because the first couple of epi- uh, episodes the first couple of of records were so outward facing yeah you know um And there's a quote from Jeff on this, where he says, except for a few moments in the first record, a lot of times, and his lyrics were just stories for me. I I knew he was a great writer and there was a lot of passion behind the lyrics, but I didn't always relate to them on this record. It's like my own thoughts are in the songs. In some ways, it's like the band's story. It's about growing up. So now this is, of course, this is in hindsight because at the time he was not a happy boy, but. You can you can see that there was this maturation, and, and as as a listener, to go from even from Vitality, which is obviously a stepping stone from verses and ten to No Code, there's a massive maturation. And so, as a listener, you're like, "Whoa, this is so different." They actively chose to do this. Why? And that's what we're going to talk about: is the why and how did it get them to a point where they actively chose to make a record like this? Yeah. So, let's go back. Let's go back to late '94, early '95. Uh, not you mentioned Ticketmaster. Not a lot of shows in '95. They're coming off of firing Dave in November or December of of uh, November of '94. Play a couple of shows. You know the Neil Young shows at Mountain View with Jack, and then '95 is all Jack. But like, and we talked about Jack last week. What does it mean to? to have a new guy and to be in this weird headspace where you're actively trying to turn things around by looking inwards. It seems like a, it's a, it's a very strange place to be. Well, I think the issue at the
1: time was that you had Jack who was a friend of the band, but Jack was also struggling with his own, family and yeah. and his own medical issues and, and you know there, there was a lot of things going on in that man's life at the time that ultimately kind of came to a head during the touring phase uh, which caused him to leave the band and then as you know matt took over and, and the rest is history but at this particular time things were actually what the, the irony is that for, for the reputation that these sessions have for nearly tearing the band apart uh, if you talk to brendan o'brien He would tell you that things were far more relaxed for this record, that, you know, it is a transitional record for the band. Obviously, Uh, he remembers it fondly as a a good time making it and the, the, the calming influence that Jack had on the band. Because the guy was such a session pro, you know what I mean. He just everybody just wanted to be their best selves As around. As Neil him. Young
0: said that year when they recorded Mirrorball. exactly. So yes. I think that
1: they were really determined to be their best selves at the time. But it doesn't help when your bassist finds out three days into the recording session that you're actually recording. <laughs> so and not only the, that, the, but that
0: he, but that his co-founding member in Stone and Ed had been working on music in Stone's Litho studio prior to that by themselves, yeah, not including exactly. him. And so, you
1: know, Mike has come out to say
0: that he knew Jeff was pissed,
1: but he felt that, or I guess the band felt, that being separate was crucial at that time. That being together at that time, just it, nothing was going to get done. You know what I mean? That they, they would just go after each other. They beat each other's throats. And so they, they had to kind of, record separately or in, in pairs. That said, though, I mean, to not even say, okay, hey, look. To not communicate that to Jeff, I think it was an error in judgment because, yeah, I mean, the guy was really upset. Ironically, he handled it. I shouldn't say ironically. He's a stand-up guy. He handled it with class. You know, Jeff's on record. Of, uh, he says that he quickly started busting his behind to demo up a bunch of stuff and then at that point he was working on the three fish record those of you listening might be familiar with that record mm-hmm. and, but he said if i didn't have that record that would have been the straw that broke i think he would have quit he's, he's mm-hmm. literally said I, that would have been it for me so they ran the risk of losing a core member founding member of this band by not including him in this communication process from the get go, it could have been as simple as saying, look, we're, we're doing some writing. You're doing some writing. Let's arrange to have some, to to bring some stuff in um, and we'll just keep it loose. But to not, I don't know what they said to him, but the fact that he didn't know three days into the session that they were actually recording is a problem because if he didn't have this, this side project going on, they might've lost it. And what would Pearl Jam be right now? I mean, this is actually a really good. What if I was literally writing, which that I'm going to drop on it right now. No, no. <laughs> no we'll save uh, it. We'll save it. We,
0: okay, we, uh, I was going to ask at the very end, but we can say it if you want to, um, uh, the, the whole three fish thing, uh, you, I find that very interesting because how does, how does stone, how, why would stone be okay with just going off to, the studio with ed and not and tell jeff at all like what was going on between stone and jeff was there a problem or did stone just was he so oblivious like that seems like a weird thing for him to do well i mean
1: if you think about the recordings on the album which is something we'll get into greater detail next week but if you think about a song like off he goes which is really eddie's reflection on being a, a terrible friend you think about um Jack's influence on the band. And you think about what Stone was talking about with regards to coming to terms with the fact that the people who used to adore you not really into your sound anymore. And that pressure of, well, do we sell out to go regurgitate that sound? Or do we follow these natural progressions that are ultimately driving us as artists? There's a lot of directions that these guys are being pulled in. And I think that these conflicting push and pull or this conflicting push and pull, uh, which I I think to a degree kind of manifests itself in Push Me Pull Me on -hmm. on the subsequent (laughs) album. But uh, if you think about what's happening there, it's easy to see how you can't really all just get together in the studio record because you're going to have different interests involved. It's not everybody on the same page just bringing in material. Everyone kind of has an agenda to a degree whether it's a personal agenda or kind of a widespread agenda. And that's why they lost Dave. You know, Dave had a vision and he was being pulled in one direction. Other guys were being pulled in another. And the only way to preserve what they had was to kick a guy out. Yeah. So I, in, in this case, you probably had multiple band members being pulled in various directions. If they all got together,
0: they'd probably implode. You make a good point. I wonder, I wonder if Stone, because he knew Jeff so well, figured this is the lesser of two evils.
1: Is wasn't Jeff the one that was pissed off because Stone didn't want to play um brother anymore? Uh, I mean, uh yes, I, I, I want to say that there was something Jeff was probably wrestling with about the band's sound evolving in the way that it did. Where I wonder that they didn't involve him as much in the beginning because they they didn't see him being on board with some of this new direction. Well, let's, I don't look, know, I'm,
0: I'm looking at the at the our master list of who wrote what and. You know Jeff's column is pretty damn full for ten and for verses, and it's a little less full for uh, for Vitalogy, and then a little less full for No Code. Yeah. So I mean, he's only credited for Hail Hail, Smile, Red Mosquito, and that's it. Um, he's got a credit for All Night, which is a, a B side from there. Yeah. But I mean, that's Ed's all over it musically. Uh,
1: I mean well that was really that was that. kind of the trend that, that that's when the band became Eddie's band as far as him being the the, the the vocal and driving instrumental force behind what they do you know Stone's recently has called Eddie his muse yeah I, I think in the beginning it was Stone had whatever muse he had and Eddie added words to that you know like they and then they figured out a way to kind of play as a band. And then suddenly you had this passing of the baton, which we really see manifest itself on no code. And that that's a difficult thing because it means a change in sound. It means a change in vision. It means a change in, in, in approach. Sometimes a change in the stances that we're going to take. I mean, you look at other bands like queen and, and the Beatles and, and, and other bands that have experienced similar types of transitions where certain members started taking on bigger roles Transfer of power, man. It's, it's, it's very it's rarely thing. peaceful. You know, uh,
0: to, your, to your point about that, there's a quote from Jeff on this, where he says um, there was a point when, like Vitalogy, maybe a little bit of No Code, where it was kind of Ed's band. Uh, I think that was him just trying to see what he could do, see how far he could take it. At the end of No Code, I think he was just so fried from trying to finish all these songs that Eddie said, "I can't do this anymore." and I'm, I'm kind of alluding to the end of our conversation when we, when we pivot to 97, 98, but like, yeah, I think Ed probably was a little hesitant to throw in his two cents. You know, he had yeah. porch and he had, um, I think portions of other songs on the first record Let me pull it up here. Musically. Right. I mean, lyrically, and mean, and, and, uh, to a little bit, uh, yeah, better man two. on vitology, which he was reluctant to put on exactly. But I think maybe what he's, saw is through the years of touring and then the the reception of better man he probably thought to, my, to, to himself, all right i'm starting to get more confident with this with this singer band leader thing maybe, maybe i am the band leader now you know things are going really well and i'm, I'm taking more more of a leadership role on and he, instead of the baton being passed he kind of just took it because Everyone was just so comfortable with Stone and Jeff being the band leaders that the battalion was just kind of sitting in the middle of the floor. You know, and everyone just understood that it was Stone and Jeff. And he goes, well, someone's got to hold it, right? So he picked it up and <laughs> goes, well, I might as well just hold this, guys. We're on the same team, but I might as well just hold this.
1: But and you they- know what? There, there, there's something about Stone and Jeff and my I can't help but think they wanted this. There was something about that structure of having that lead. I think, I think all three of them did to a degree. I mean, you, you think about Andy Wood and who Andy Wood was in that mm-hmm. band. And to, to some degree, I feel like they were trying, always trying to recapture that magnetism. And they found it times 10 in Eddie Vedder. Yeah. But at some point, Eddie has to stop being a vehicle, and he has to start becoming this organic part of the band where who he is as an artist starts informing the music that they make in a way that Andy was able to do because Eddie wasn't that force in the be Eddie was a vehicle right. who, who elevated the music that the rest of the band members wrote and he contributed. Whereas Andy Wood essentially was the driving force behind mother love bone. I mean, you look at the composition structure, he is all over that stuff. I mean, it's just, he was this enigmatic um, force of nature, pardon the pun. And it was his band by all, by all uh, accounts. And so I think that, to a degree that they were looking for an opportunity to
0: replicate that again this is i'm just uh, you I'm know, I wonder, speculating yeah, it's, conjecture. it's conjecture I'm, i you know yeah. i wonder if in the back of jeff's mind he as pissed as he would be to be not commun- not communicated to as anybody would be in that situation ultimately he knew that he was in a band that was making great music they had it they had it. Really well at that point, and they had established the fact that they could do things on their own terms. Yeah. And get by because they had gotten through 94. They were in the middle, let's say, let's say at this time, they're in the middle of 95. Um, because according to Wikipedia, recording started the day after Soldier Field in the summer of 95. But presumably there was mm-hmm. some writing before then. Um it's a weird time, but they had made it through together. They made it through San Francisco and, and Ed's food poisoning and and the the shit that Neil and Jeff were taking uh, at the polo grounds in your home city and to get through that and to get back on the road. um, There, there's a lot to be said for the strength that they must've known in the back of their minds. It was there and was worth fighting for, even if they were pissed as all hell. And you talk about, you know, the three fish thing, you know, who knows if three fish isn't, isn't popping at that point, what that really does. But I think you have to also look to the, this the material that Ed decides he's going to create with the baton now that he has it, and you know I was reading an article and here's a snippet from it that I thought was very applicable. After two albums spent leaning hard on the wheel of discontent with the outside world, he was looking inward. It wasn't he being Eddie. It wasn't enough to simply deem the world a cesspool and dream up a song about a getaway car anymore. The problem and solution might actually lie within. And here is the crossroad, right? Where they're having these internal issues. And before they were, they were talking about what they were seeing in the world and why it was fucked. And it, that was for the people who were connecting to that. That was everything. Oh my God, you see what we see. You see how we feel. This is incredible. And so that, that's why the, the millions upon millions of people were latching onto them. But as they mature, which I mentioned before, and the audience starts to mature, maybe at a, at a different rate because they're a little behind most of them being younger you see this change in the writing process. And again, we'll talk about this with step more in depth, but I wonder if the, you know, the fact that Eddie chose to turn the camera inwards is partially why they were able to get through this writing and recording process and put out record.
1: Probably. I, I think so. I think that Eddie had to find this part within himself in order to channel the artists that we know today. And I think this is that transitional record where we start to see that happening. Um, and, and I think it it, it was a, a rocky transition that required an adjustment period for the band. And, and that's why I think that this album is so seminal in terms of their ability to uh, collaborate despite that transition and still produce something. And quite frankly, it does not happen. If Brendan O'Brien is not the guy there. Mm. And if Jack Irons is not the drummer, if it's Dave and Rick, I, I think the band's over. I, it's just not going to, they're not going to survive this.
0: You know it is? I, I liken it to, uh, I'm sure we have uh, plenty of basketball fans on this podcast. Um, and I would liken that to, it's not a one for one analogy, but Phil Jackson, Phil Jackson was an excellent, is an excellent coach. Uh, and there are teams that won the championship with him that may not have otherwise. And it's not because the teams didn't have enough talent. It's because they couldn't coexist. And and, and there's a certain ballet and massaging of personalities to make those collective work as one unit right. and win a championship. So it might just be that it might be like a two headed monster of Jack plus Brendan O'Brien, maybe like 70, 30 Brendan O'Brien uh, was the, was the Phil Jackson to Pearl jams, you know, the bulls, Lakers, whatever. Knicks. I guess not the next, but um, I would love to get Brendan on the show and talk about that because <laughs> that would be, <laughs> I put out feelers by the way. So we'll see maybe hey, one, day. Um, one day. One day. <laughs> But I find that very interesting. It's a great point that there needed to be somebody to kind of bring everybody back. And, and I wonder how much Jack and uh, Brendan probably spoke about trying to keep things together and create a common purpose. I don't know how much of uh, um, how much couching they did together
1: to to kind of like sit down and really look at, how to frame what, what needs to happen. I feel like Jack was just Jack and, and they were on their best behavior around him because they knew that the, the guy's a professional. You know, you're, he's not going to, if you want him and he comes in here and it's this dysfunctional chaos, he's out. You, you don't have a drummer. And you're lucky enough to get a guy that, quite frankly, and, and I'm quoting Ed here, you believe should have been the drummer all along. Well, now that you have him, like the last thing you're going to do is walk into a recording right. session and be an ass, you know, what I mean? like you, yeah. whatever it is, you're going to, you're going to keep it outside or, or you're going to channel it in a different direction. It was just too much to risk, I think. Um, so
0: the, it's a weird the, time, man. I mean, you've got, there's so much going on in 95. Uh, you, you have a new drummer who's been with the band for like, what, 20 shows. Right. You record an album with, Uncle Neil. Ed's barely even involved. He's he's basically involved in one track and you can hardly hear him. Um, They go through this weird-ass tour through parts of the country they've never seen um, because they can't play normal venues. Ed gets food poisoning. They play Soldier Field, an unbelievable show, blow the roof off the dump, and then start recording an album that they had started writing behind one of the founding members' backs. Continue continue playing a couple of shows and then most of the band goes on tour in Europe with Uncle Neil to support Miraball. Then they come back and do more weird ass dates in like Las Cruces and Phoenix and shit like that. And they end they end the year. And it's like, okay, I feel like it, you can sustain yourself through all that if you kind of go through the motions like, okay, we're a band and we have we have we have things in the schedule we have to hit. And yeah, we 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 talked about you know the birth of known. we can say no whatever we want, but there's a certain I think um, when you have plans like that, and as a band, it's not about you; it's about the collective. I think it's easier to say that's for the fans. We we can make it through this, and you kind of put your head down and work. And a lot of those shows were amazing. I think the spring shows were all about Southeast Asia, yeah. and they hadn't been there before. So that's that's incredibly exciting. The back half is those weird shows, like I said, like uh, in, in the Southwest, and you get to the end of the year. And you're still recording while you're on the road. Chicago, New Orleans, Atlanta, Seattle. They get into 96. And I mean, they kind of toured. There was a, you know, a, a couple, what was like 20 shows that they did in random places. First time they ever played Hartford, as I mentioned mm-hmm. before. In um, that big European tour, we always go back to our, for our right. friends in Berlin, Germany for our live cuts because it was such a great show. Um, it, was, it was an interesting time. And I, I, I just, it's how do you get through, how do you record an album where you're kind of at odds with each other? It's a completely new musical direction. You're trying to figure out internally what's happening with you guys and still put all this stuff out. And the album comes out in 96, in the summer of 96. It's just a very strange chapter that we know very little about outside of a few interviews we've read. Well, I mean, you know, Jeff almost walked,
1: you know this. Uh, I think, you survive by keeping things organic. And I think that really informed the recording process because it was very much, um, you know, Jack Irons used the expression on the fly. You know what I mean? It wasn't like they went in and they brought ideas and they sat down and they hashed them out together. They, they, they couldn't. There was too much conflict at the time. So that they had to do a lot of stuff separately. And sometimes it might've been sketches that they would bring in. You know, uh, but they were fried. I mean, they were just I- I- exhausted and they've some been really going cool, nonstop for a long they've time. They've been going nonstop. I mean, it's difficult. It's hard to play to tour and, and do all these shows and and you know back they were they weren't they weren't playing for you know sixty minutes. They were playing for two or three hours at the time.
0: I know? mean I wonder I wonder how much um this state of mind and just kind of grinding out these, these shows. It was jamming. I think they, they just,
1: they, they kind of were jam sessions, you know, they just kind of rushed it a bit. I mean, not in the, not in the way Vitology was rushed, like on a tour, but I mean, it was, it was, like I said, I mean, they they bring these fragments, these, these sketches, and it would take a while before Ed could figure out what the heck he wanted to do with these things. And he would kind of finish them off, you know, um do you think that that was the new process and that's that's when the transition happened was was ed putting these these finishing touches on it but it was that controlling influence that really alienated jeff and so you you just had a lot of pushing and pulling happening within the band that the band that you listen to today was born here this is the recording session by which every other pearl jam record should be framed against because the way that every Pearl Jam record has been recorded since I feel has been in some ways, um, a reflection of what this recording session ultimately created and manifested in them as artists who collaborate together.
0: Yeah. And I I think, you know, in, in choosing to, to get through this, to forge through this and, and make a record, um, when it could have been easier and the more logical choice to just take some time off from each other, um this ultimately got them closer um in some ways in a lot of ways. And I think that this forced them to acknowledge their differences, come together, and you mentioned it before um the the five against one slowly becoming us against everybody else or right. all, or I should say really, us awesome. all in it together. Right. Yeah, all on it together, um, and what that ultimately did is, I think, once you get through the release of the record, and you get to some of those late summer shows, and you get to Europe, you have a more unified band who's already thinking about the next thing. I, I mentioned to you uh, a couple of days ago, and even before we start recording tonight, that I've really been watching the uh, Randall's Island Night Two show, yeah, yeah. over uh, in the. It's now called I Can Stadium. They actually leveled Downing Stadium and made a new track and field stadium. But yeah. it, over there in New York City, uh, yeah. it's a long-ass show that pretty much everybody who's been to it has said that it's – they thought it wouldn't end because yeah. there were just so many moments where they go, okay, this has got to be it. This has been incredible. This has got to be it. Nope, kept on going. I mean, I literally have watched it over the last three nights, and I'm only two-thirds of the way through it because I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm exhausted. I have to go to sleep. It's an incredible show. They stop an animal halfway through because of like all the this commotion happening and make sure making sure everyone's okay. and then eventually, like three minutes later they restarted right where they left off. And you could tell at that point that they had gotten all they had gotten through this, and they were together. And what we get out of that, and I think that latter half ninety six tour and the break that they took in ninety seven to record yield was a really, really. Cohesive effort on yield, and we see that in the songwriting process you, you you read that in in the in the articles uh interviewing the guys about the process uh you you see it on um single video theory um, and off we go from there, like you said, there's no other recording session, there's no other album, there's no other tour unless they find themselves through this process, this conflict.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Jack urged them to, to talk about these issues. And I think that there was that you mentioned it, maturation that Jack Irons embodied that ultimately provided the anchor by which the rest of the band could feel some semblance of sound footing. And that allowed this chaotic time where all of them were untethered to find a way to link back up again and produce music and, and, forge forward, you know? So it's, 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 it's a, you cannot listen to this record absent the context of how it was recorded. And, and I think that when you, when you frame the record as a listening experience with that context, it adds so much layer and nuance to it that wouldn't be there otherwise. And and for a lot of fans who are very intimately familiar with the band's history, I think that has a large part to do with why, um, this album is is so seminal for them because we like human struggle. That's what, draw, we, you know, there's something, nobody wants to go see a film or watch a show about everything going right for a character. We're drawn to the realities of the human condition. And this album was forged in the fires of those realities, unlike a lot of other albums that came before it from this band. And as a listener, you, there's a certain emb- connection that you feel to it because you, it, it's real it's raw and it's real and the more you read about it the more interested you are in revisiting the album and the more you revisit it the more you find things that you mm-hmm. hadn't found before case in point with me and, and ballad like around the bend was a song I couldn't even listen to when I first heard it in 1996 and now it's one of my most beloved songs on the album I wasn't mature enough And I didn't have the perspective necessary to appreciate a track like that. As I aged, I was able to to find that I had values that suddenly aligned with what that song was all about. And it added nuance and meaning to it in a way that was absent before. So all those dynamics, I think, are at play in why this album is now recalled and remembered as fondly as it is by so many Pearl Jam fans and music critics in ways that it wasn't necessarily back in, in
0: the mid to late 90s. And I think, coming out of that, like you said, and then them getting through that fire, they found that they had the conflict, but they came out of it a stronger band and i And I mentioned Randalls Island a minute ago because there's a moment in this in this show that I think exemplifies the epilogue of this journey that we just spoke about, and it was kind of halfway through uh Long road, and Eddie talks about a dream uh that he had um That they took the stage, they started playing, and they just didn't stop. And Mm. in this stream, they played so long that the crowd just started kind of trickling out. They started leaving until there's only about six fans left on the lip of the stage. And in essence, it was was this vision about a life after No Code, Mm. in which Pearl Jam could finally just do whatever they wanted, however they wanted. And they had their core audience that would follow them regardless. And guess what? That has pretty much happened. They've done things a hundred percent their way together through conflict. And it's not six people. It's pretty much like 22 to 70,000, depending on the venue every yeah. damn time. Uh, okay. There you go. Any, any more thoughts on, on, no code while no, we're here? It's, uh,
1: I, I think that to, to discuss further would have us delve into The 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 actual songwriting process, as opposed, which I can't wait to talk about with which, which, right? I'm excited about that as well, but I I don't want to dovetail into that without him here. So we can we can table part two
0: of this discussion until next week. All right. Well, then let's move on to our lyric of the week. Lyric of the week, as you guessed, it is from No Code, and it is from Habit. My friend Habit chose, uh, I think, the second to last or last verse here. What do we make of this?
1: Ah, uh, man, I just think it beautifully sums up addiction. It, it, it mm-hmm. personifies it in a way that uh, makes it very real for somebody who may not know what it feels like um, to have something like a habit that is in love with you. That, to be loved is, is uh, a deep-seated human need. And, and every person can relate to the desire to be loved. Another habit says it's long overdue. Another habit like an unwanted friend, I'm so happy with my righteous self. It's such a fascinating examination of how habit can overtake and govern a person's sense of, of uh, free will. And to watch how many... Musicians of this era fell victim to habit. How many musicians? How many great, just iconic musicians that have been lost due to habit? And I think that it's fascinating when you consider that Eddie was writing about this in the mid '90s. We just lost Chris recently. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's it's almost like it it hasn't stopped. You know what I mean? And and it continues to persist in in the world of music. I think. There's something about music being a uh, a conduit for the troubled soul, and and it's not uncommon to find a lot of very successful musicians lose themselves in their music as a way to cope with issues. Now, I, the last thing I want to do is is, is generalize like that, or, or 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 to come across as as labeling, or or you know suggesting that anyone who's a su- successful musician is using it as a way to, to deal with inner demons. I'm not suggesting that, but I, it's not uncommon either to have a musician who, who leans into that talent as, as a means of kind of expressing and, and coping and vocalizing some things that are very difficult to do on an interpersonal level with the people in your life. And so, I mean, Dolores are from the Cranberries is a great example of somebody who, who had, I believe she had, bipolar disorder I think it was bipolar disorder and uh, she really struggled with those kinds of things but music allowed her a way to explore some of that and and she found success with that and so it's not uncommon to to see people like this I mean we have two members of Allison Change that succumbed to this very idea so this idea of being righteous you know I'm so happy with my righteous self, another habit like an unwanted friend. I mean, it's that twist there that I really, really like because I think it underscores the idea that um, you lose yourself in the habit and there's an arrogance embodied by the habit because it now owns you. Whereas you all along have had the ability to choose yeah. or to reject and yet you you succumb to the idea that you you lack that ability. And the second you you come to believe that you lack the ability to, whether it's a chemical issue or whether it's a mental issue or a spiritual issue, um, that is ultimately when you have given way to this governing province that ultimately is going to suck you dry and leave you as, no, as just nothing but waste. And it's, it, it's very, very troubling to think about, but it, it's, it's very on the nose I mean, it's, it's not the most, um, you know, I, I would hardly call it some of Eddie's best writing, but I don't think it's, it's poor writing by any stretch of the imagination. I, th- I think that it, it's anytime you can personify something like a habit, I, I think that it elevates the lines in, as I mentioned, in the sense that you're giving it a, um, a quality that allows it to seem
0: real to somebody who doesn't necessarily find him or herself yeah. able to relate to that. So a, a concept personified like 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 mm-hmm. an addiction and using the word habit is an interesting uh, is euphemism i don't know it's a interesting uh word choice for for the topic here um of course addiction i mean it's, it's it's all about addiction right i think i think they've all said that um and i think it's easy to stick with that sentiment the drug thing uh, or or alcohol or whatever um but it's, you I think can it's, interpret the the chorus multiple ways right exactly i never
1: thought you'd have it, it could be a verb yeah, You could also say, I never thought you'd. It's like an unfinished thought. You would do this to me, habit. You know yeah. what I mean? I never thought yeah. he, I would end. So there there's a, a lot is there of ways. A comma. To...
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's, nevertheless, though, I think it's a good message to think about with anything that really takes too much of your attention. You know, something that takes so much of your focus that you lose it for other things that really need it, like friends or family, yourself, yeah. really. And it's something. You know, it's something you're obsessive over because you think it fulfills you like money, maybe, or, or makes you better when really it's just tearing away at you. Um, you might have a job that takes away all of your time and you think that working that much is the right thing to do and that it will be better for it. But, you know, what if you actually won't be, and, you know, money isn't everything. And what if your mental health or your relationships are suffering because of it? Right. So it, it, it's not necessarily an addiction to a thing. You know, like like a like a like a narcotic or a booze or a sex or whatever. It can be a concept. It could be a job. It could be a it could be another person. Really, Um, anything that that feels like a drug uh, that that makes you think a certain way when reality it's another way. Uh, Oxford says a settled uh, habit is a settled or regular tendency or practice, especially one that is hard to give up. Hard to give up. How many things are hard to give up that are ultimately actually good for you <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> there's man. some but not i I'd say more probably not uh, most i, I things, don't see a lot
1: of people saying god i don't think i can i, I can't do without my celery today
0: you know <laughs> i like celery but you know. yeah well you know <laughs> I, I would say most things done too much aren't good right sugar tastes. it's delicious i had four crispy cream donuts today paul it was delightful bad idea
1: yeah. I, I could see it. I could see it coming out of your pores right now. It's I'm just oozing glaze
0: right now. Shits <laughs> and glaze uh, oh, on that note. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah. Is this song, you know, multi-layered? No, no, it's pretty much on the nose, but it's an interesting way to talk about something that was obviously very affecting, um, to the band, uh, and it's not like Jack didn't have any idea about this or couldn't relate because he had um a friend and a band member who o d'd and obviously that put him in depression for a long time, as you mentioned last week yeah. on on that episode about Jack. So it, it was something that I think was coming to the fore. I mean, in '94, uh Kurt killed himself. In 95, Allison Chains was slowly dissolving, and I'm, I'm sure they knew why. I mean, they were all mm-hmm. friends. Um, so it's you know, it's an unfortunate circumstance, but I think it's an interesting way to to uh, to talk about that uh, rather than yeah. being so on the nose. Uh, and, you know, this is one of the songs that kind of divides opinion more so for the music than anything else. But I, I think it's an interesting way to to talk about this topic. Let us go to our live cut of the week then. am live part of the week Paul you've chosen the third ever performance of this yeah, song when yeah. is that and where is that
1: July 11th, 1995 now there's uh there, there's there's just a handful of shows in 96 that i would say we have great quality sound on those boots and uh it's unfortunate and you know i'm i'm right there with the 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 movement to to try the to movement. restore and, and and bring some of that back on on uh, uh, you know, on the fans uh, bootleg vault set, but uh, until then, <clears throat> we do have this this lovely show in, in uh, Chicago Soldier Field, July eleventh, nineteen ninety five, and this version of Habit is supercharged, and I think it, it's a wonderful transition, which I think is the motif, right? The motif of this album transition from who the album, I'm sorry, who the band was with. Vitology, and who they're ultimately becoming with no code and, and to have it placed here in 95 in Soldier Field, where Ed Chicago, very much in Ed City, obviously, this record is the uh, manifestation of Ed kind of becoming the voice of the band. So for, for, for us to hear a song like Habit played in Chicago, there's just so much symbolism here in terms of what this album and this song ultimately would would be remembered for. Uh, And when I say habit, you know, I don't want to say that it's the highlight track of the album. I don't think that it is, but it it was a track on the album. And uh, at the Soldier Field show, it's not like you heard the gauntlet of no code. You know what I mean? They just, there was so much more recording that still needed to happen. So uh, I just think it's a fantastic sound quality. And uh, it's, it's a very, very uh, rough and rugged version of a song that, it's garage rock qualities really require that you know what i mean it's not a song you want to hear polished and ed's voice is in just perfect form for it so i thought it was the best available version that you're going to have there are a couple of other ones that i like as well from 96 but this particular
0: one i thought was just in terms of
1: sound quality the standout one
0: all right let's head back to chicago in 1995 on july 11th (laughs)
1: as a child of the 90s.
0: before no code recording started yeah was this show and funny enough it sounds like it's played a little bit differently to the album version i mean that's that's i think that's not uncommon when you have a song that's been written but no, you had recorded. whipping
1: played in uh or is it is satan's bed as well right at uh atlanta 94
0: we had a couple of yeah tracks. yeah yeah i mean it's not uncommon it, for them to do that but what yeah. i mean is you know what you get on the album is gonna go through a producer's lens, he's gonna tweak some things. I think so I saw I feel like the the pre-chorus might have been a different chord that they were doing. It was just a little bit different. Um so it kind of made my ears perk up a little bit um as I haven't listened to the show in a little while. The the thing that you mentioned though before we got into the song is that it's got this frantic all over the place super loose sound and performance it 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 really fits the sound of the guitars and the drums, and it's almost it almost feels like an unsure of itself performance, even though it definitely knows it wants to get from A to B. You yeah. can see in the video if you if you go on YouTube and watch the video that uh Ed actually stopped singing I think the last couple lines of a chorus um. Because he turns around to Jack and all the band members kind of huddle around Jack's drum kit to make sure they're hitting the right notes. Cause they're like, shit, we've only played this twice before. Let's make sure we get these ding, ding,
1: it, It's ding. such a lovely <laughs> glimpse into kind of the, that, that process. And yeah. you don't
0: normally get to hear that live. You know what no, I mean? No, son? no, It's like, it, you could tell that they had, it was definitely a very fresh song and the fact that he's, they're all like communicating, okay. And there's a change, change again. Okay, now we're doing it. That was so cool to see, and it actually it totally fits with the the style of the song. Even that they what you hear on the album, which is the quote unquote polished version of this garage rock song, the whole the whole vibe of the song actually works better as this crazy, almost um hitting the guardrails of of being in tune or being in time performance. And I think the outro jam, maybe the Us best I've kids. ever heard. Yeah,
1: it is cool. Yeah. It is
0: fantastic. <laughs> Jack and Mike are out of control. I love it. So if you're looking for the most perfect execution of a song, this is not it. No. But because of how this song sounds in the record and the looseness in which it's played intentionally, this only magnifies those things. Even though they didn't mean to do it this way it's a great, great version of it because of that. Yeah. Yeah. There you go, guys. Uh Second episode of, of no code talk talking about the vibes and the, and the, and the, state of the band at the time. I think it's good that we talk about this before we get into the songs themselves. It sets the table. So I'm glad yeah. we kind of did it this way, Jack into the state of the band, into the actual music with our friend Stip. It's almost like we had a plan. Week. Almost. <laughs> it could be that we've planned things just a tiny bit. Because, as you know, regular listeners will know that oftentimes we don't plan a goddamn thing. We, no, know what we're we gonna don't. We're going to talk plan. about the next one week to the next. But this <laughs> month, I assure you, we have spoken lightly about the schedule. Yeah,
1: so there might plan. have been two texts. No, I'm we put some thought <laughs> in this. Until next week.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there you go. Um, for again, for all of you out there um, going to see here now in New Jersey. Please, please enjoy yourselves. It's going to be awesome. Um, I look forward to hearing from you on social media again. State of Love and Trust underscore Pod on Instagram. Right. S O L A T underscore Pod on uh, Twitter, and of course, Facebook channel. We are all over that as well. So um, write a review, subscribe, rate the rate the channel. That would be wonderful. And uh, until we see you next week with step in toe, you have noticed thing too. The state of love and trust.